went even wrong in this situation. He took a pinch in the back. He got beamed for crying out loud. We used heart attack. Managers on a major league baseball team don't make decisions. Credibility in this situation is worse than losing your job. Was it over with the castration of the major league baseball managers we know it ask me about my winner what's going on everybody another edition of the passball show brought to you by johnpelli.com by st alwish's church in jackson new jersey uh, reflecting a little bit on this martin luther king jr week as we think of everything that this man sacrificed he sacrificed his own life by simply believing in equality and simply believing that everybody should be treated the same. Um, look at a look at back at a couple instances that that was not necessarily the case. And I'm going to start out by talking about a very dominant New York Yankees catcher in Elston Howard. Turns out that he was the first black player to play for the New York Yankees. And the reason that this stands out is the Yankees were one of the last teams to integrate when they, you know, after Jackie Robinson became the first black player in 60 years, yada, yada, yada. But it seems like there was something to the fact that the Yankees were waiting or delayed the inevitable integration, which all, all ball players, regardless of the way you look or what your differences were, should be able to all play together. And for whatever reason, that wasn't the case. I'm not here to to solve that. The Yankees brought in a great man, a very good representation of what a black player should be. There wasn't a bigger, a better gentleman, a better person that presented himself the way that Elston Howard did. So if the Yankees did any sort of vetting process and trying to pick the right player... Elston Howard would have checked off all the boxes. The issue was the Yankees waited till what, 1954, 1955 to make this happen? And and to me, that's that's an issue in itself. But Elston Howard ends up having a, a solid career. He wins the MVP in, what, 19, 1962? One of the best catchers in the sport. And... You know what? He ended up taking Yogi Berra's job, which, by the way, and he won the MVP in 63, not 62, so smack myself for that. But Yogi Berra, one of the greatest catchers in the history of Major League Baseball, you know, ends up getting older, and he takes over for, you know, Elston Howard takes over for him, and the next thing you know, you're talking about an MVP type of player, and Probably one of the better players on the Yankees, not named Mickey Mantle, for the better part of the late 50s and the 1960s. His career ends. He ends up going to the World Series with the Red Sox in 1967. And how many World Series did he play in? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Jeez. Nine World Series? That's That's incredible. And you look at a man whose career comes to an end, just like every other player in baseball, and you look at it, he goes to, into the military in 51-52. He makes his Major League debut with the Yankees in 1955. So he already lost some time. 
uh, he goes right into the coaching ranks and uh, over time you know builds up a lot of credibility same type of credibility that he builds up as an active player and the Yankees have a chance to do something that nobody in baseball has done you know you think of Jimmy the Greek you think of Al Campanis um, both men were very misguided in where their thoughts were over what a black man or a black woman was capable of doing. And the Yankees, sadly, had a chance to trump anything that anybody in baseball had done to that point. 1972, just 10 days before his death, Jackie Robinson makes that famous speech at Crossley Field in Cincinnati saying, hey, I'd be a lot happier if I looked back, I looked into that third base coaching box and saw a black man as a Major League Baseball manager. Something that, for whatever reason, baseball had integrated itself for 25 years and it never had a black manager. And of course, you know about the statements that were made in 1987 by Al Campanis, the statements that were made a little bit before that, three, four years before that, by CBS host Jimmy DeGreek. And the sad thing and what kind of upsets me is that was a sediment that actually existed. And I'm not going to spend this whole time just picking on the New York Yankees, but they were in a position where they had a qualified, respected baseball man that happened to be of color. And you wonder why the Yankees didn't name him Major League Baseball manager for the 1974 season. Of course, they ended up going with Bill Verdon, and Bill Verdon had managed the Pittsburgh Pirates before, would end up managing a couple other teams, the Expos and the Houston Astros, before it's all said and done. I think he brought some credibility to the Yankees. Ralph Houck was kind of the placeholder after he took over for Johnny Keene in 1965. Ralph Houck was the manager of the bad Yankees, really one of the only bad times stretches in the history of that franchise and when they were ready to turn the corner when they had this guy named Thurman Munson this young pitcher by the name of Ron Guidry and free agency was about to run rampant and they were to get Catfish Sunner and Reggie Jackson and add themselves Greg Nettles and you know Goose Gossage eventually build themselves up to be a championship team uh, you know Ralph Houck was ready to step aside and the Yankees had a chance to do something no other Major League Baseball team had done to that point, and that's hire a black manager. And they, something happened which caused them to go against it. Now, all these years later, since 1974, the Yankees have had, what, we're going on, what, 48 years? As we get to 2022, the Yankees have had 48 years to hire a black manager. And especially in the 1980s when George Steinbrenner was firing his manager after every 30 games. The Yankees have had a chance to put a darker skinned man or woman in that dugout and have chose not to do it at this point. They are one of nine Major League Baseball teams that have never hired a black manager. And I don't think this gets brought up enough. Now, what do you do? You've heard me talk about the coaching vacancies in football and the fact that there's the same amount of teams in football that have never hired a black football coach. You know, when they have a vacancy, do you say, you know, how come you're not 
hiring a, a, a black coach. You know, the Rooney role exists in football. You're forcing teams to set up interviews with minorities, but most importantly, people of color. And you're getting, you know, Todd Bowles is getting interviews. Jim Caldwell is getting interviews. Some of them are token. Some of them are done with the fact that they could cross that off their list and say, yes, we interviewed a black candidate, but this person wasn't the one we wanted for the job. The Rooney Rule helped the Pittsburgh Steelers. They hired Mike Tomlin, and he's been their coach ever since. It might have been a token interview. It might have been an interview that he might not have gotten anyway if it wasn't for the Rooney Rule. Should baseball institute something like that? Or should we just make it conscious that there's teams that have been around, the Yankees since 1903, other American League teams since 1901, three or four National League teams have been around since the 1800s? They have to be conscious of this. And maybe ownership doesn't know. You know, maybe Hal Steinbrenner isn't aware of it. Now, listen, I'm not asking him to fire Aaron Boone and hire somebody of color just to just to appease this part of the argument or this sentiment. But at some point, you, you got to look at what's wrong and think of what you could do to correct it. And like I said, the Yankees were at the forefront, and they can't go, they can't jump into DeLorean, crank it up to 88 miles an hour, and go back to 1974 and hire Elston Howard. Which, by the way, if you knew that Elston Howard didn't have a whole lot of time left, which nobody did at that time, you know, to have Elston Howard lead the Yankees for a couple of years would have would have been great for baseball. So, as we another thing I think about is the career of pro football quarterback Doug Williams, and another thing you could talk about coaches, you could talk about um, you know leadership roles in a world of professional sports and whether it's right or wrong the uh, there has to be an acknowledgement that there are not enough leadership positions being held by those of African American descent and it's it's a fact it's not an argument it's not a take it's proven by the numbers you know pro football as they sit here right now they actually have one head football coach with darker skin color, and that's Mike Tomlin. Two black coaches just got fired, one of whom led, led the Miami Dolphins to a seven-game winning streak this year and a winning record in the last two years. One of them took over a bad Houston Texans team and didn't have the benefits of using his Pro Bowl star quarterback. And they both lost their jobs. And, he, and it begs to ask the question, hey, if they were white, would this happen? And I, I can't think of a more unfortunate situation to happen in pro football than thinking about the career or what it could have been of Doug Williams. And when you talk about leadership roles, in the NFL in the late 1970s, certainly in the 80s, even into the 90s, I, I guess through the, the dominance of Warren Moon. Warren Moon was really the first black quarterback in the National Football League to dominate, to become a no-doubt no Hall of Famer. And I think he really paved the way for other black quarterbacks to get opportunities and succeed in the National Football League. 
But one person that didn't have that benefit was the quarterback out of Grambling State, Doug Williams. He was drafted by a bad team and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers for um, a long time were kind of one of the doormat franchises in the NFL. But when they came in as an expansion team, uh, they lost every game their first season. John McKay, with his uh, famous quote, what do you think about your team's execution? I'm in favor of it. You know, that's a, a famous statement or an infamous statement. If, you, you know, if it offends you, I don't, I don't know what to tell you, but you know, I think it's freaking funny. But Doug Williams led the Tampa Bay Buccaneers to prominence. He, he got out of that team something that they hadn't seen before. Won 10 games in 1979. Two years later, another nine games in 1981. And sure, he spoke up every now and then. But there was a sediment that existed amongst pro football that led to some fear about teams having a black quarterback. You heard the, the late Rush Limbaugh make that statement on NFL uh, primetime, I think it was, on ESPN, the show with Chris Berman and Tom Jackson. And, you know, it was off it was off color, off putting. It was definitely not for that type of program. But he made he made a quarterback a quarterback um, statement in regards to black quarterbacks in the NFL, and he shouldn't have made that statement. But the fact that it was said, I think, is significant because it was a sediment that existed back then. And Rush Limbaugh, and what are we talking about? Late '90s, early 2000s, was saying it. Now he could say whatever he wants on his radio show, but you know he said it on a football show. And I don't think he was that far off in regards to where that sediment existed. For some reason, there are people that are threatened or were threatened by the thought of a black quarterback succeeding in the National Football League. And that's why there were so few of them. And we look at the NFL right now, and Cam Newton you won an MVP. Lamar Jackson won an MVP. You look at the, there is more of a diverse group of black quarterbacks in the NFL today certainly that it were in the 1980s and then you watch somebody like Doug Williams who essentially was forced out of the league by the time he was 27 years old and to lead a Tampa Bay Buccaneers franchise to a 500 record over the course of five seasons when that team had no business doing as well as it did a lot of it was on the back of Doug Williams' arm. If you ever watched him throw a football, there are a few great quarterbacks in the history of pro football that could throw the ball as far as Doug Williams. And sure, he had some flaws. You know, didn't have a very high completion percentage. Had about as many interceptions as touchdowns over the course of his career. But to watch after 1982, him have to get a... Uh, a job in an alternate football league and not play in the NFL spoke of racism. It absolutely did. Now, you could hide it when you're talking about hiring Elston Howard when it comes to being a manager in Major League Baseball. You could say, hey, I, I didn't think he was ready. You're talking about one individual. But when you talk about, and I've said always, one of the toughest positions to fill in a National Football League. A lot of people retread in position in this position just because there is such a dearth 
at the quarterback position in the NFL. And if you look at Doug Williams' talent, you can't tell me that in 1983, 84, 85, that he didn't belong in the NFL. Now, he ends up getting back into the NFL because Joe Gibbs was on John McKay's staff in Tampa Bay. Ends up getting a job as the head football coach at the Washington Redskins at the time. And he hires or brings in Doug Williams to be a backup quarterback. I think it was Jay Schrader that was there in 86, 87. Am I right? Uh, I think it was a, an injury that led Doug Williams into being on the football field. Yeah, Alan Jay Schrader was a solid quarterback. Redskins won 10 games in 1986. You know, a year later, 1987, they ended up winning a Super Bowl against the Denver Broncos. And Schrader ends up getting hurt. Williams leads the team in the last couple starts of the season to losses. And Doug Williams is the starting quarterback in the postseason that year. And, you know, here's a guy that I, I really felt like fate was on his side because he was incredibly wronged about the way he was treated and essentially blackballed from the NFL. Not blackballed. I, I guess Colin Kaepernick is blackballed from the NFL. But Doug Williams was, you know, kind of on timeout, having to play in alternate leagues. And if it wasn't for his success, and I think the, what was it the USFL he was playing in, if it wasn't for that success, Joe Gibbs probably doesn't take a look at him and says, hey, I remember this guy from Tampa Bay. He's got a great arm. Uh, I want him on my team. And he's sitting on the bench behind Jay Schrader in 1986 and 1987 and ends up getting a chance in the playoffs. Wins three games. Seven touchdowns, two interceptions. Leads the Washington Redskins at the time, like I said, to the, the football uh, Super Bowl where they beat the Denver Broncos 42-10 to 10. and you look back and you say why why wasn't this player playing in the NFL? You know, he's age 32 now. He gets a chance. He makes 10 starts a year later. Uh, by the time he's age 34, he's out of the league. And once again, you know, I think it was one of mankind and we, I, you know, I talk about mankind as it exists in the world of sports. Uh, biggest regrets because you're looking at a player that I don't know if he could have been an all-time great. I don't know if he could have been a Hall of Famer. But certainly you're looking at somebody, if he got a chance to play 10, 12, 13 seasons in the NFL, um, I think he could have certainly put up capable numbers for a lot of to a lot of players that were playing in the league. He could have put up Steve DeBerg numbers. He could have put up um, Dave Craig numbers. Yeah, there were a lot of average, slightly above average quarterbacks in the NFL. And Doug Williams, from a talent standpoint, was right on par with him. So sticking to the NFL, we're thinking of house money as it exists in the playoffs. And certainly with the playoff format, it increased to seven playoff teams in each league. I, I think of the, the chance for teams, maybe a young team on the rise that's not their time, the, the word house money gets thrown out there. You, you say, hey, a team, I don't know, they're in the playoffs. Maybe the Eagles. Um, if you want to talk about the the seventh seed in the AFC, the Pittsburgh Steelers, kind of sneaking in at the end. 
the Raiders. Yeah. Teams that, I don't know, when you're thinking of the top two or top three teams in a conference, aren't really coming to your head. So how far does that go when it comes to the playoffs? And I'm talking about specifically the Arizona Cardinals. The Arizona Cardinals got off to a great start this year. Were one of the darlings of the NFL early in the season, leading the best division in football in the NFC West. A team that's got the Rams and it's got the 49ers. The Seattle Seahawks had a bad season, but nobody thought that coming in. They were looking at a quality football team in Seattle in addition to those other three cities. So Arizona gets off to this really good start. Yeah, Kyler Murray gets hurt. Um, they start to feel the impact of it. J.J. Watt was a big signing for them. He gets hurt. DeAndre Hopkins has missed some time. So just like a lot of other teams in the NFL, they've had to deal with injuries. And I think they kind of slid back from the pack. They're, by the time the season's over, they weren't as good as San Francisco. They weren't as good as Los Angeles. And got themselves into the postseason. And the expectations were, well, listen, I think they could play the Rams tough. But on paper, the Los Angeles Rams were probably a better team. So the fact that the Arizona Cardinals lost, do you look back and you say, was the season a disappointment? No. Well, they didn't make the playoffs a year before. They got off to a great start. Maybe the expectations increased a little bit by said great start. But you look back at it and, it, hey, if they could have won a playoff game against the Rams. I think the focus would be more on the Rams losing than the Cardinals winning. Because you'd be talk, talking about Matt Stafford, the fact that he was traded for Jared Goff, who had, was part of the Rams getting to the Super Bowl just two years before. And if Matt Stafford, who has never won a playoff game, didn't win this playoff game, we'd be talking about how much of a disappointment it was that the Rams lost as opposed to the Cardinals winning. So I don't think the Cardinals necessarily had house money. You know who had house money? The Philadelphia Eagles. Philadelphia Eagles who slid in and got that number seven spot in the playoffs. Jalen Hurts getting a little bit of experience in the playoffs. Nick Sirianni as a head football coach getting his first shot at a postseason game. Playing against a really good Tampa Bay team. A team that they probably had no chance to beat. You never know. Hey, uh, an early uh, interception, a turnover, they get up. 10 points early in a game. All of a sudden, Tampa Bay's got to play from behind. That's why they play the games. You know, and I look at the Raiders and I look at these Pittsburgh Steelers, two teams that, once again, I don't look at them as legitimate Super Bowl contenders, but they had some house money to play with. And the Raiders, who lost to the Bengals, and the Bengals could also be in that category, but Listen, I think a lot of people are taking the Bengals seriously. A lot of people think that the Bengals can go into Tennessee and Nashville and beat the Titans this week. I think it's at least a possibility. I think Tennessee clicking on all cylinders, a healthy Derrick Henry, a healthy Julio Jones and A.J. Brown, Ryan Tannehill not making mistakes in the defense playing of their capability. Um, I would think Tennessee can win this going away. But all those factors... I just made as constants as opposed to variables. I look at the Bengals, first playoff win since 1991. Something, certainly something to be proud of. Can they build upon it this week? I think they're becoming the San Francisco 49ers of this week. I think a lot of people are gravitating towards the Bengals. But one thing that I looked at in the past, and 
you know, the playoff format changed to where there's only one first round bye in each, each conference, where there used to be two. Wildcard weekend was a big deal with four teams in each conference playing each other, playing each other hard, two teams winning, but those teams both going on a road and playing a team that had a first round bye. And a lot of times you figure out in the divisional round why the team that had the first round bye had the first round bye. They outplay the wild card winning team in many cases. And certainly, you know, you look at the Green Bay Packers of 2009, the Giants of 2007. And there's examples of teams that went from the wild card round all the way to the Super Bowl and won it. But a lot of times you'll, you'll say, hey, I watched a wild card game this weekend and this team looked so good. And all of a sudden they don't look so good when they're playing that team that had that extra week of rest. The Titans can benefit from the week of rest. Certainly the Green Bay Packers will. Now, it's going to be interesting to see. If the Titans are clicking on all cylinders, if the Packers are clicking on all cylinders, it's going to make it very tough for Cincinnati and San Francisco to win. Now, speaking of San Francisco, they beat the Dallas Cowboys. And we think of the Cowboys like this. Number one, they're a national team. There are fans everywhere that root for the Dallas Cowboys. And they have this advantage. And I say it for this reason because I'm on the East Coast. If the Cowboys aren't playing the Eagles or the Giants, which I know in the Northeast, those games are going to be on television all the time. Dallas, as the national team, is going to probably have more games that are seen by more people in the country. Now, it behooves the fan, you know, the traveling fan, the fan that lives in all different areas of the country and not just Dallas. But it's also beneficial for average, regular football fans that get to see the Dallas Cowboys a lot more often than they see other teams. And I think it could be a good thing and a bad thing. The Cowboys, when they were bad last year and Dak Prescott was hurt, uh, I think it was pretty evident that they weren't a playoff team. Now, you watch them this year. You watch them beat up on the Giants. You watch them beat up on the Eagles and the Washington football team. And, you know, they, they, they were a 500 team against anybody else. The record says that. They were 6-0 and zero against their division rivals. And they were 6-6 six and six against everybody else, including their first-round playoff loss to the San Francisco 49ers. And the reason I talk about the Cowboys being on television all the time is you see the Cowboys win. Every now and then you see the Cowboys lose, but you see them win a big game against the Patriots. You see them uh, you know, winning games against the Philadelphia Eagles, who are a playoff team. And you start to get a little fugazi, fugazi. You start to believe that the Cowboys are a little bit of a better football team than they are. And the best comparison I can make is if you followed last year in college basketball, the Big Ten if you wanted to watch a college basketball game, you turn on ABC, you turn on ESPN, and they're playing a ton of Big Ten basketball games. And you got to see some good basketball. You got to see Michigan and Ohio State and Illinois and a, you know, a lot of very good teams playing very good basketball. But you, you watch it, and once again, in my McConaughey voice, Fagazi, Fagazi. You, you're watching teams that are beating up on each other. 
And you start to think these teams are good. The NCAA tournament comes out. Michigan, Illinois, Ohio State, all one or two seeds in a tournament. And they all get bounced. They all get bounced. Why? Maybe maybe they were, weren't as good as you thought they were because you watched them on television all year. And the same thing happened to the Dallas Cowboys. Dallas Cowboys won 12 games. They earned every one of those 12 victories. But they were not a 12-win team on par with the other 12-win teams. I don't think San Francisco and them are on the same level. You look at the other division winners in the NFC, whether it's the Rams, whether it's Green Bay, whether it's Tampa Bay. Listen, can Dallas win a game against those guys? Sure. Yes, they could win a game. But are they a better football team? No. And that's similar to what we saw in the Big Ten in college basketball this year. You watch them go out, you know, those, those good teams, the Michigans, the Ohio States, the Illinois, and you start to realize that they were a little bit more flawed than we got to see when we saw them beating up on each other. When the Big Ten's beating the Big Ten, one Big Ten team looks like they're pretty good. When the Cowboys are beating up on the Eagles and the Giants and the football team, Cowboys look to be a little better than they are. I do want to thank everybody for tuning in to the Passball Show. Once again, we're brought to you by JohnPielli.com, by St. Aloysius Church in Jackson, New Jersey, by Two Ways, One Passion Food Truck located in Scranton, Pennsylvania. We're going to be back with you this Saturday, speaking about everything going on in the world of baseball and sports. Hopefully there's more going on in baseball that we could talk about. You know, you hope that the labor negotiations between the owners and the players, um, I don't care where you want to cast your blame. I really don't give a shit. I just want baseball. I want baseball reinstated. I want the lockout to be over. I want you know a flurry of free agent signings as we get set for the next season. I want to plan my trip to spring training in Florida. I want to plan my three road trips where I'm going to see games uh, in the Los Angeles Angels Stadium in Oakland and in Houston this year. That's what, that's what I want to see. I don't care who's right, who's wrong. Let's get some baseball going. We'll be back with you Saturday. God bless you. And as always, I see you on the other side. Brian was on the Chicago Cubs roster opening day. I have many leather-bound books. My apartment smells of rich mahogany. Why don't you give it all or a majority of it to the team that wins the friggin' World Series? I was going to listen to that, but then I just carried on living my life. I may come out as the biggest... Major League Baseball manager apologist. That'll only make someone work just hard enough not to get fired. Because hitters are going out there saying, I'm either going to hit a home run or I'm going to strike out. And if I don't get a pitch that I feel like I could drive out of the park, I'm not even supposed to be here today. Especially prospect whores and hoarders are going to be a little pissed off at me when I say this. I'm a dude who lays the dude's another dude. There are only two managers in baseball's Hall of Fame who have losing records. One of them is the iconic Tony Mack, who you could say, in spite of winning five World Series championships as a manager, could be in as much as a pioneer. And what side of the spectrum they're on? Were they pitching? Were they batting? If your favorite team was pitching and a ball got inside to hit a batter, there's no way it could have been on purpose. But if you were a fan of the team that was batting and the ball got inside and hit somebody or went behind somebody's head, absolutely 100% unequivocally that pitcher was throwing at They put their tail between their legs and decided they're going to do exactly what they're told. 
You damn well right better give him a contract extension. You damn well right better make him the manager over the next series of years. 35 years ago, I could have loaned your parents the money for an abortion. <laughs>